In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't know how it sounds to everybody else, but I feel like I'm like booming right now. I can deal with it if this sounds good to you guys, though. <laughs> Just throwing it out there. This morning, we are going to uh, continue with uh, a tradition that we've adopted over the last couple of years. Each year during Holy Week uh, for our sermon, we will do one time, we will do uh, the gospel in chairs. This isn't something that we came up with here at the table. I think uh, it was originated by an Orthodox priest named Anthony Carbo. And I think we first became aware of it through Brian Zond, but we found it to be profoundly helpful in our understanding of what the good news of the gospel is and for us to have a better or more clear understanding of the character of God and what is going on as we proceed and continue to move, move towards the cross on Easter. The Gospel in Chairs is a presentation of the Gospel in two different versions. The first one that we'll look at is the one that we're most familiar with here, which is the legal or the judicial Gospel. This one that we'll go through first, it's actually a more modern take on the Gospel. It's got some Western tendencies, and that's why it's probably the one that most of us grew up hearing in the churches that we were raised in. And so it'll sound probably very familiar to most of you. And we'll take a look at that one first. The second one is the restorative gospel, which is more ancient. It's more uh, originates out of the patristic church. So it's kind of been handed down from the church fathers. Uh, in my preparation this week, I heard, I heard these referred to as the first one being the Protestant gospel and the second being the Orthodox. That doesn't feel quite right. It feels a little bit, you know, presumptive potentially. But potentially, you know, depending on where your churches have been previously, uh, you may associate them similarly as well. So starting off with the, the legal judicial presentation or version of the gospel. In the beginning, God in his perfect holiness created the heavens and the earth. And God created humanity, men and women in his image for the purpose of living in communion, in relationship with him. In the garden, Adam and Eve chose to sin. They went their own way and went against the commands of God and they ate of the fruit that was forbidden. And in sinning, humanity became sinful. And because God is perfectly holy, he cannot look upon sin. And so because of this state of sinfulness, this defining characteristic, having sinned, humanity is now sinful, God cannot look upon them. So no matter what humanity does from there, no matter what action they take in pursuit of right relationship with God, God does not turn towards them. He's always turning away. Humanity may try this, try to, to do as many good works as possible, but because God is perfectly holy, he cannot look upon a sinful state. The Bible says that all of our good works are like dirty rags before the Father. And so no matter what humans do as sinful beings, they cannot reconcile themselves with the Father. And so God sent Jesus in the flesh to live the perfect human life, to live sinlessly and in perfect communion with God the Father. Because of his sinfulness, he was able to have divine, perfect communion in his life and model that for us. And then, having lived a perfect life, going to the cross, God puts all of the sins of the entire world on Jesus. 
Now, in this moment on the cross, because all the sins of the, the world are on Jesus, God in his perfect holiness turns away from Christ on the cross. And here on the cross, Jesus experiences all of the divine wrath of the Father. Total rejection and cast out. Because of this, if we believe that Jesus did this for, his, for us, and if we accept him as our Lord and Savior, then we are able to have a relationship with the Father. The way that people have taught about this previously, uh, Martin Luther talks about this as us being like snow-covered dung. So if we believe in Christ's sacrifice and we proclaim that he is our Lord, because of the blood of Christ, we are able to have this right relationship with God the Father. Another way that it's been preached many times is that Jesus's blood is like our asbestos suit, which keeps us safe, keeps us safe from the white hot wrath of the Father. It's what protects us from this radiation, this radiating heat that would kill us if we weren't covered in the blood. And so even here, this is all based off of us believing in what Jesus did and accepting him as savior. So if we were to step outside of that, then we would once again experience the wrath of God and be eternally separate from him. Does that sound familiar? There's some good news here. There is a way for us to be saved. But it also prompts some questions. Why does God have to kill Jesus to be able to forgive us, to accept us back into relationship with himself? Another question that it might prompt is, it kind of seems like God and Jesus are fighting each other. They're like duking it out for the outcome of humanity. They don't necessarily seem to be on the same side, uh, at least not at first reading. And so it creates some questions. They might give you some pause. What comes to mind for me is the meme of Jesus standing on the door, at the door and knocking. And he says, let me in so I can save you. And the person inside the door says, save me from what? And Jesus is like, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. Which causes a lot of questions about who God is and what his ideas about us are. I think we can do a little bit better than this, even though there is some good news present in that. That was the legal judicial view. And so if we take a look at the restorative view of the gospel, we start out very much the same. God in his perfect holiness creates the heavens and the earth. God creates men and women. He creates humanity to be in perfect communion and relationship with him. Still in the garden, Adam and Eve choose to go their own way. They choose to sin and eat of the fruit. But in the garden, God comes looking for Adam and Eve. He pursues them. And Cain kills Abel and turns away from God. And God comes looking for Cain. God continues pursuing his people. God seeks out a man that will start a family, that a family that will grow into the people of God, that will grow into a nation through which God can bless and reach the entire earth. And then his people choose to worship a golden calf. They turn away from God. But God pursues them and takes them to the promised land. 
He tells them how to be his people, how to live, how he will rule over their nation as their Lord without a king. But they say they want a king like other nations. So God gives them a king, but he sends prophets so they can pursue them and speak to them. They continue turning and he continues pursuing. And God finally sends Jesus to live a perfect human life so that people can see what God looks like in the flesh. And so people see this humanity and what, what the divine looks like wrapped in flesh and bone. And we find a woman sitting at a well. She's been looking for love in all the wrong places. She's been married five times. She's currently living with somebody who's not her husband. But when she meets God in the flesh, God sits down next to her. And he says, I'm the water of life. I'll love you. We find a man who, for the sake of greed and power, has aligned himself with the oppressive uh, occupying force in his own country. He's been ostracized. He's chosen to align himself with power instead of his people. And so his people won't associate with him. They won't eat with him. But when he meets God in the flesh, he says, I'll eat with you. Come down out of that tree. We're going to your place today. Salvation has come to your house. Here's a woman who's been caught in adultery. And the religious organizers in that day have condemned her. They want to stone her to death. But when she meets God, he gets down on his knees next to her. And he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And when humanity rejects God in the flesh, when less than a week after celebrating his coming, waving palm branches like we did earlier and welcoming him, when they condemn him to death, even though he's innocent, when they torture and brutalize him, when they nail him to a cross and murder him, what does God say then? He says, I forgive you. And when humanity experiences the final dissolution of all things and falls down into eternal death and eternal permanent separation from God, what does God say? He says, love is greater than the grave. Though you make your bed in Sheol, I am there with you. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus has the keys to life and death. And he has conquered death. There's no place that you can go that the love of God won't follow you. God's love is an unquenchable fire. And for those who accept it, it's experienced as giving warmth and light. It's a comfort. But for those who aren't ready or who are unwilling to accept it, it can be experienced as wrath. 
It can feel ostracizing and cast out. And we keep unknowingly turning away from the Father's love. But he is not turning away from us. He's pursuing us all along. Friends, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. He didn't come to convince him that we are worth loving. God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. God is and he has always been like Jesus. We didn't always know this, but we know it now. God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. Paul says, God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. There's a reason that he doesn't say that God in Christ is reconciling himself to the world. Because God has been pursuing us all along. God never turns away from humanity. Christ reveals God perfectly. And we never see Jesus turning away from a sinner saying, I'm too holy to look upon you. I'm sorry. You have to go. I have to leave now. We never see Jesus doing that. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. God never turns away from you. No matter what you've done, what you do, no matter how many times you turn away, God will not stop pursuing you with your love. God is relentlessly confronting you with his love. Even today, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, as we wave palm branches in celebration, when we go out from here, and this week or this month or this year, when we turn away from God, where we go our own way, where we think we have an idea that's better than what we think God has called us to do, when we unwittingly do it, when we do it intentionally, God is relentlessly pursuing you with his love. This is the good news of the gospel. God looks like Jesus. He's always looked like Jesus. We haven't always known it, but we know it now. There's nowhere that you guys can go that the love of God won't follow you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.